Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of history, culture and personal experiences. Now, before getting into the podcast today, I want to apologise to you all for my hiatus from releasing any new episodes recently. I have personally undergone some continental shifts, but I'm looking forward to releasing some more content in the coming weeks and months. You may have noticed that the introduction to the show has slightly changed, and this is because we are broadening our focus a little, as if exploring existence wasn't broad enough. And so instead of just talking to individuals, we're also going to be doing some historically and culturally based programs, but always maintaining the thirst for spiritual knowledge. In today's episode, though, we stuck to our usual format of a personal interview, but expect some different things soon. Speaking of which, today on the podcast, I spoke with Father Michael Kelly, who is a Catholic priest and a member of the Society of Jesus, who are better known as the Jesuits. The Jesuits are a group founded in the early 16th century, during the Protestant Reformation, by Inigo Loyola, a former Spanish soldier who capitalized on a transcribing error while matriculating from Paris University and became known as Ignatius. Father Kelly and I began our conversation by talking about the world that he grew up in and his decision to become a priest and its notable difference from the society that we find ourselves in today. We then spoke about the Jesuits and their method of practice, which is both based on an emotional and experiential relationship with God, as well as an intellectual grasping of what that relationship is and how to act on that in our daily lives. The cornerstone of Ignatian spirituality are the spiritual exercises, which, as Father Kelly explains, encourage this experience-based understanding of God by bringing us into a personal relationship with Jesus. Father Kelly has spent most of his career as a journalist, bringing to people an intelligible understanding of the Church's teachings after the Second Vatican Council and its place in the world. In pursuing this, he has become the Executive Director of Union of Catholic Asian News and the English Language Editor of La Croix International. As such, Father Kelly has a strong understanding of the direction that the Church is heading in, and we spoke about what he sees as the issues facing the Church and why Pope Francis is an unusual Pope bringing about change at the highest level. We also touched on Father Kelly's work with Pakistani refugees in Thailand and his perseverance to get them resettled around the world. We finished by looking at the life of the late Australian Labor Senator Susan Ryan, who Father Kelly believes led a life of great holiness, even if it was at times devoid of institutional influence, and how she is an outstanding model of what it means to live a Catholic life. And so, everyone, thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Father Michael Kelly, I'm joined by you today. You're an old friend of mine and a good friend of mine. I've sort of known you for quite a while, and you were the Catholic priest in um, Northbridge for me when I was growing up. And I think you're a little boy. A little boy, yeah, yeah. I think some of my earliest memories of going to church were you up the front, uh, not not beating down on the congregation, but definitely making sure that your point was, uh, was heard and, and uh, tried to make it understood. Good. But also at the end of Mass, if there was a rugby game on, you'd always make sure that Mass was finished on time so that everyone could get home to watch the footy, which is, which is an interesting aspect about you because I suppose people would say that you're not the, the most ordinary of priests you have uh, certain inclinations for, for sport and whatnot that um, other people, other priests 
might might not have. But I wanted to start by asking about how you thought about becoming a priest, considering that you have those sorts of tendencies that aren't so, I guess, natural or common in in other people of your um, stature. Well, firstly, let me say, Jack, your perspective or perception of the clergy um, is really one that's especially strong among your generation. When I was growing up, clerics were basically knockabout blokes. You know, there was nothing special about them. They, uh, they, you know, weren't interested in going to the races and being at the footy, playing footy, playing cricket, doing whatever. And that was just taken for granted that that was the case. And then um, if they had anything to add in the way of wisdom or insight, that was terrific. And they were listened to for that. But, but by and large, um, they were considered to be uh, just, just ordinary people who uh, had a bit to say, maybe had a contribution to make to your life. But there was nothing unusual about, about a cleric taking, you know, about a, a cleric taking an interest in the ordinary lives that people led in, and that meant sport and ideas and politics and, and the whole thing. And no one was getting up, you know, on a pedestal and saying, you know, have, have I got three winners for you on Saturday? Or, you know, do I know what the, uh, the outcome of the grand final is going to be this, this coming week? No, it was just, this is, this is me, this is how I am, and this is the way I do things. And so there was nothing unusual about me at all. Right. And so you, you sort of grew up in that environment and that um, way of life obviously appealed to you from a, a young age. Yeah. Well, you see that the people, you know, life's about an awful lot more than religion. It's about relationships. It's about growth. It's about uh, maturing. It's about discovery. It's about encouragement. Now, all those things were rolled up for me. And, you know, when, when I was thinking about, about becoming a, a Jesuit and a priest, it was not unusual in my generation for people to do that. I mean, for 20 years before I joined the Jesuits from the school I went to, every year there'd be two or three would go and join the Jesuits. So it was, it was perfectly normal for that. In my last year at school, there were only 67 of us in the year and nine of us went into one form of some form of clerical or religious life, including three to the Jesuits. Um, so, you know, that, that's more than 10% of the class actively considered a religious vocation. So, good-o, well, that, that, that was the world we were in. That post-war world is, the post-Second World War world, was a much simpler world. It was, it was one that... Um, came out of the experience of the depression and the second world war all of which pushed people to the wall and made them anxious and and uncertain religion became a very important anchor in the middle of all that uncertainty um and and so that's where uh, that's where some of the aspiration to wanting to get into clerical and religious life now of those nine who, who put their hand up to go to the seminary or into a religious congregation only two of us are still at it uh, one's a bishop and there's me. Um, but that's that's sort of the way it unfolded. Right. And why the Jesuits? Why were you sort of drawn to that 
that particular group? Oh, well, I'll be blunt. Um, I had a look at the bishops around the place and I thought, oh, I don't want to work for them. So <laughs> I said, no, thank you. And then I had a look at the Jesuits and some of the Jesuits I found immensely esteemable, admirable people. And I wanted to, um, you know, be part of that movement and part of that project. So it wasn't terribly hard for me. I mean, once I'd made up my mind that I wasn't going to be a barrister or, you know, be a businessman or be something else, once I made up my mind that I actually did want to be a priest uh, or more a religious, um, or if you really want to know, probably more to be a missionary, uh, once I'd made up my mind to do that, then the Jesuits became the operative way for me to do it. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want to like, labour the point, obviously, but that's, it's quite a big decision to make. You, they, the, the priesthood is no, no, it's, it's no ordinary profession or vocation. Um, and so I, I suppose to use the Jesuit language that we might get onto, there's that process of discernment that mm. you have to go through. Very simple in my day, Jack. Very simple. No, no big deal. Um, do you believe in God? Are you prepared to wear the Catholic Church? Do you think they're both good things? Do you want to nail your colours to the mask on those ones? This is the way to do it. Wasn't a big deal. I mean, I remember, I remember in my last year at school uh, being interviewed by the then provincial of the Jesuits, who then proceeded to leave the Jesuits four or five years later, <laughs> interviewing me at school and, and when I wanted to join. And he said in a very solemn and serious tone of voice, ah, well, go away and pray about it. And I looked at him and I said, what do I want to go away and pray about it? I've made up my mind. You know, you should be very grateful that I want to join you lot. Why, <laughs> why, why on earth, you know, should, should there be any further consideration? But, you know, that, that was how naive and one-dimensional my whole approach to things were. But it was common. I mean, you know... When I, when I left school at the age of 18, the average life expectancy of males of my time was about 68 or 70. Well, I turned 68 next birthday, and I'm not shuffling off any time very soon. Um, people may want to kill me and get rid of me, and that might hasten the process. But I'm, I, I think I'm in sound enough health to last a bit longer. Now... Back when I was a kid, um, you didn't, you, you know, people, I mean, remember, it was the time of the Vietnam War. It was, um, you know, we'd had 25 years of, of conservative government in Australia. It was all terribly, boringly stable. And um, we hadn't hit, you know, uh, you know the, the, the flaming 60s actually didn't happen till the 70s. So when, when we were growing up in the 60s, it was pretty stable. Yes, there was some drugs around. Yes, the Beatles and so forth were happening, but it was really pretty stable. And uh, it didn't get hot till, you know, sometime into the 70s, really, for, that, for all that. Um, so, you know, making a decision to join the Jesuits was, was not all that unusual. Now, this might come as a, as a shock, but the, I'm sure there's... Uh listeners out there who don't really have much of an idea of uh, who or what the Jesuits are. Mm. Um, so are you able to give us a, 
uh, an overview of, of the Jesuits and their particular Catholic philosophy and method of doing things? Yeah, the Jesuits were started as a missionary order. That's what they were there for. They were about, they were about preaching the gospel, spreading the good news, building up communities, particularly at the margins, particularly, you know, in, in uh, uncongenial circumstances. I mean, this is a recurrent theme of the present Pope's, um, you know, exhortation to the whole church. And you can see how dysfunctional a Jesuit can be when you make him a Pope. I mean, look at, look at the way he's shaking the church up now. Now, that's, that's absolutely consistent with what the Jesuits are about. They're not about, you know, the stable, the stable delivery of predictable services in the, in, the, um, in the church. However, once you have a charismatic group uh, that settles down and starts performing various functions and, and various um, activities, it becomes institutionalised and, and everything becomes pretty predictable and, and all that. And that's, that's what happened when the schools came in. The schools came and absorbed personnel and took all that down. Then you turn around on the other side and you say, well, actually, it's through those institutions that you can have some lasting influence. Okay, okay. But the, but the downside of the institutions is they actually take away from the, uh, the missionary enterprise that, that is essential to the spirit of the Jesuits. Now, um, that's, that's the first thing. Second thing is the actual engine room of, the, of Jesuit motivation is, is the spirituality of St. Ignatius, which is the, um, the spiritual exercises. And it's they that are foundational to the motivation and uh, energy that the Jesuits bring to anything um, so that, you know, anyone can run schools and the sort of schools that the Jesuits have set up around the world now run themselves you know you don't need jesuits to run them so it's time for the jesuits to move on and uh, get out there and make a difference at the margins and and in places that don't have that stability the saint ignatius was around in the early 16th century which was a time of a lot of great turmoil for the church you have martin luther doing his whole thing posting his 95 theses um you have henry the eighth creating the rest of the Reformation. And you, with Luther particularly, you have a turn to a more inward and for want of a better word, mystical um, religion, which Ignatius sort of took up a little bit while remaining within the Catholic church. And you, you mentioned the spiritual exercises and they're a very emotional connection or they're trying to evoke an emotional connection with God through prayer and so there's that really emotional side to, to that but the Jesuits are known as being quite intellectual as well they correct me if I'm wrong but I believe that they have certain um, requirements that you meet to become a Jesuit sort of intellectual requirements and so there seems to be those, those two aspects of both being intellectual and also this focus on the emotional nature of their spirituality. That's right. Um, but look, the first thing about the Jesuits is the spiritual exercises. And the spiritual exercises are a school of prayer. 
And as a school of prayer, what they particularly focus on uh, is the discipline of uh, managing mood swings as the way to find God's will. That's really what, what the spiritual exercises are about. And that's about, that's about your intimate, personal, emotional life and how you grow and change and, uh, you know, become more yourself and, and become more effective. That's the whole idea of the spiritual exercises. But then, then you say, all right, well, what does all this experience mean? Because, see, one of the things that happened to Ignatius before he founded the Jesuits was you had the, the, the dreaded Spanish Inquisition. And the Spanish Inquisition thought that he was actually a dysfunctional, uh, chaotic individual that was going to destabilize the Catholic Church because it was going to make it completely emotionally based. So he wanted to say, no, I want to explain what my foundational experience is so that people can come and join it and find out more about it through the um, communication of it. But, you know, in anything that happens in life, um, anything that happens through any stage of our life, the primary datum or data of our, of our experience is where everything begins. And then out of that data comes understanding and the suggestion of what the next steps are and how we understand ourselves and our circumstances. So there's experience followed by understanding. And then we reach a point where we make certain judgments about what needs to, um, uh, needs to unfold and that needs to be our next steps. So experience, understanding and judgment are the sort of anthropology that the exercises work on and that, that the Jesuits work on. Experience, understanding and judgment. Experience is foundational. Understanding that experience is essential. And judgment is what you do with it and where you take it. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. And so would that be that sort of discernment process of discernment is part of it, but you've got to have you've got to have the you've got to have the the basis of experience to discern. I mean, you can't you can't discern anything until you've got experience and you've got choices. And once you make choices you then have consequences and then you have to work out what you're going to do with those consequences. That's, that's the next stage. But experience is the, is the primary thing and experience is the primary thing in faith. My experience of God is the guiding anchor for where I go on my journey in faith. Then, then once, once I take some steps, I look at those, I review and revise them and then I consider what are the next steps. So it sounds right. like quite a practical approach to living a Catholic life. Of course it is. Of course it is. And it's and it's a, an intimate guide to yeah. to follow to follow along. So how, if you were to do the spiritual exercises, how is it structured out? Oh well, the full spiritual exercises is um, is thirty days, and the first the, the first week, as it's called. It's not actually a week of seven days. It's usually about eight days. And it's fairly foundational things about the uh, part of my experience of God, which is my creaturehood, my, the gifts God has given me, my failure to 
to embrace those gifts and live from those gifts and so on and so on. And then the second week of the exercises begins the um, spending of time with Jesus in his ministry, which then culminates in um, fairly basic experiences of um, the kingdom, the call of the call of Jesus and the kingdom and choice about discipleship and that sort of stuff. Then there's a then in the third and fourth week, which are you know three and four days each, there's a more foundational experience of the death and the resurrection. So there's meditation on the on the passion, and then the final week is 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 the resurrection and the new life that we have in, in Christ. So that's the way the, the the exercises as such unfold, and that's the four weeks. But you know, that's a sort of artificial description of them because in fact, in the way our lives unfold, all those weeks are there every moment of the day. And, you know, all we're doing is focusing a bit on some of them. You mentioned the, the every moment of the day and there's, there's a constant sort of reflection on that, which yep. is also the Ignatian idea of the examine, which is, you, I suppose, you're meant to do as often as you can, but they say it twice or at least once a day. And that, and that's similarly a, a reflection of where was God in my life? Did I follow Him? Did I not? Yeah. And what were the consequences coming from that? That's right. And so that I one, do, I, I do my first examine when I wake up, because I say to myself, how do I feel at the moment? Am I joyful and grateful? Am I anxious? Am I you know, as I am a bit at the moment because I've just had my leg amputated, am I resentful? Am I really annoyed that I've got to go through this whole process? Sometimes I am. And then where do you go with that? Where do you go with that feeling? And what do you, what do, you do to uh, take that, that feeling further so that it takes you more deeply into God? So it, it can you can be doing it at every moment of the day, at different turns in the day. No? And so that's, that's similar to the idea of um, that really practical nature of prayer. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so you make the decision to, to join the Jesuits and, and, and where do you initially go after, after, after making that decision? Oh, I went to Watsonia which is where the novitiate was in those days, which was an outer suburb of Sydney. And it was, uh, oh God, it was a bloody, um, you know, Stalag. It was a, you know, remnant of the Second World War. It was a Nazi concentration camp. I hated the bloody thing. And um, many's the time I wanted to get out of the place. And then I said, well, no, this is not going to be Jesuit life. This is this is the abstraction called preparation for Jesuit life. So I'll put up with it. And I ended up having to put up with it for a couple of years. And then I went and studied. Um, then I went to university for four years and did an arts degree and studied history and social science. And that was a lot more, you know, down to earth and sensible. Uh, then I went and did a couple of years of philosophy. And then I started to discern what difference I wanted to make as a Jesuit. And of course, the things that were offering were the, the ways in which I'd um, uh, come to know the Jesuits, which was through my childhood as a Jesuit school and all of that. 
and I'd reached the conclusion that, you know, historically the Jesuits came to Australia fundamentally to create a Catholic professional class. Uh, that's, that's the job they were given and that's why they developed the schools they had. And I just looked around and said, look, that job's been done. There's no real challenge in that anymore. What else do I want to do? And then I looked at the world around me and I said, look, we have just gone through the Second Vatican Council. Most people don't get it. Most people don't understand what it is. It's a watershed moment for Catholicism, but it hasn't been communicated at all and people haven't grasped it. So what I thought was, well, the key is communicating the faith to adults and creating a culture within which Catholicism was, was not this huge and incredible um, leap of, of, of absurdity out of where we were into something else. So I, you know, th that, was, that was the aim. And then I, then I said to myself, well, how did I make that leap? And I said to myself that the way I made that leap, even though, you know, I was extremely lucky to have the benefit of um, some terrific education in theology, scripture, spirituality, and all the rest of it, I was very lucky to be, to be blessed with the people that I had doing that. Um, I didn't see it moving very far out of the confines of clerical and religious life. There wasn't much for lay people. And uh, so I wanted to turn around and say, well, how can, I, how can I do something there? And that's when I came up with journalism as, as a way to do it. And there's a whole history in the Jesuits, which is called in the French... Haute vulgarisation, that means high, pop, high popular writing, not scholarly writing and not, not comic, comics and uh, all that, but, but really serious, but not, but not devastatingly scholarly, you know, oppressively scholarly. So that, that's what I wanted to do. And that's really what I've done with all my media work over the year, over the years creating publications, doing all that sort of stuff, aimed at making um, the affirmation of Catholic faith plausible and intelligible to intelligent people of our times. I know it's probably hard, but if you were to sum up the, the, the changes that were brought about through Vatican II that you were trying to communicate to people, what would what would be sort of the key takeaways of, of Vatican II? Too many, too many to to just summarise in a few. But look, at the end of the day, there's a, there's a, a phrase in in Catholic theology called the long 19th century, and what happened through the 19th century up until the middle middle after the middle of the 20th century, in the period of um, Pius the Twelfth, you had the long 19th century. And the 19th century was an ab abnormal period in, in, in Catholic history because it kept, it kept a series of things going that were really a reaction to the dethroning of the Catholic Church as, you know, the altar and throne uh, combination of Christendom. And the Catholics didn't like that because the, the Pope wanted to be both both an, a religious and ecclesiastical leader, but also a temporal and, uh, and you know, ordinary power. Now, the Second Vatican Council completely reinterpreted what the Catholic Church was, that it was, it was not the hierarchy 
from Pope down. It was actually the people of God from the bottom up. Now, that all, that all changed. And, of course, that threw into question a whole understanding of ministry and the clergy and the role of all that in the, in the creation of the church. Now, we are just in the earliest days of that. We haven't in any sense exhausted the possibilities that are part of that. So we've got a long way to go before we really appreciate what that is. But um, that's really what, the, what the, the Second Vatican Council transformed the starting points of being a Catholic in the 20th century, even more so in the 21st century. And uh, we haven't yet got to the point where we've exhausted that. And, and would you see that the greatest... Um roadblock to achieving any outcome of that the second vatican council would envisage is a lack of communication to the laity which are as you say the the people of god who provide- no, no no not at all not at all i think i think most catholics know the show has to change that it's completely out of sync i don't I, and i think you know they know all that right the biggest the biggest obstacle to change is people who are afraid of change and people who believe that they're going to lose their status and identity uh, if change happens. So you've got, you've got all these fossils in, in the Catholic Church that, that uh, are hermetically sealed in you know, wearing dresses and funny hats and uh, thinking that you know, somehow or other holding the line is preserving a culture that's essential to the transmission of the gospel when it's not at all, at all. And so with the, the transmission of the gospel not coming through that um, structured culture, how, how do you go from, from changing the, that sort of historical and cultural aspect to one that is, by the sounds of it, quite personal to, to the laity themselves? Um. Yeah, you, you do it in steps and stages. Look, Catholicism has always been about both personal and corporate matters. It's been, it's been about personal belief and a relationship with God, and it's also been about shared celebration and sacramental life. So there's nothing terribly new in what I'm saying, but there was such a, a, an overlay of, of um, organisational nonsense in, in the show. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was just a you know, happy camping ground for institutionally ambitious, self-promoting empty heads. And there's a lot of that around in the church. Deals, deals, basically. Pope Francis seems to um, be causing a lot of disruption. Is that because he's really trying to um, push ahead with some of uh, yeah. getting well, rid of Reedy, Reedy's encyclical, his first encyclical, Evangelii Gaudium. He's, he's a most unusual figure to be a Pope because he's actually an evangelical. Popes are bishops and bishops are people of the institution. They are people whose job is to preserve and promote the institution. Um, evangelicals are people who are, get hold of the gospel and want to promote it and push it and deliver it and, and all that. 
and they are prophetic. You know, they they highlight things that a lot of people don't want to notice, and and they push that sort of stuff. Now, this guy, you know, he he doesn't come out of out of a um, out of a culture of um, a Catholic culture of, of oppressive and long duration. He um, he comes from you know the new world, even though there's nothing terribly new about life in Argentina. Um, still the same old old carry on and lots of fascists. Um, so he's um, th there is something very fresh, new, and different about him, but he's also um, in many respects quite traditional. But the key difference between him and I'm just going to get some water. Yeah. The key difference between him and a lot of his predecessors is he has no history in Rome. Never studied there, uh, never worked there. He's not part of anything as far as Rome's concerned. So, you know, he's not going to be um, towing the line and doing what... Um, Doing, doing what the institution would have thought was the obvious thing to do. So, yeah. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. So he, he's, he's sort of a, an, an outsider from the streets, being on the street, delivering the gospel. And in him, there seems to be that emphasis on, on doing the, the word of God, of, of, of washing the feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's, he's, a, he's a pastor, basically. You know, he, he wants to communicate the gospel and build the community and do that sort of stuff. Now, an awful lot of people in Rome and elsewhere in the hierarchy of the church, what they want to do is administer an institution. You know, they want to keep keep it running properly. Some of what goes on in the, in the, the church is quite, um, I think it's almost unapproachable because there's so much... Um, Irrelevance. Irrelevance. Well, yeah, probably. And you really need to keep up if you want any uh, hope of understanding what's going on. That's right. Um, but a lot of it's not even worth worrying about, Jack. I mean, it's just stupid. It's sort of like, you know, today, today I don't know how much of that uh, fight between Joe Biden and Don, Donald Trump you saw, but... You know, I started to watch it and then I just couldn't keep going. And I'm just saying to myself, who the hell cares? I mean, Trump kept interrupting, kept, you know, he's not interested in discovery or insight or learning. Um, and I just thought, you are an oaf. That's what you are. I don't want to watch you turn the, I turned the TV off. Now, I think various people find that with the Catholic Church too. You know, it's just ignorant and stupid and not worth even worrying about because it just, speaks about things that are of complete irrelevance to their lives. So they say, oh, well, if that's what you want to do, do it. But don't expect me to hang around. Yeah. And so with that, what do you think is, is the relevance for the church to both their followers and to people who switch the TV off? Oh, I think, I think you know, it's, it's of immense relevance if people have faith, if they've Heard, heard the message of Jesus, they have a relationship with God. If they nourish that, that, that um, relationship as you should with, with spirit and prayer, then it's got immense significance. But, you know, you, you've got to have, you know, I mean, you've got to have the weather eye out for what's 
really worth sticking with. I mean, there's an awful lot of it that's just not worth worrying about. Which is fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Now, in addition to your work as a journalist, which which took you to, to Thailand for, what was it, 15 years? 10 years. 10 12 years. years. 12 years. In, in amongst that work, you've also continued to be a missionary and a pastor, and you've done a lot, a lot of great work, particularly and most recently for the, the refugees in, that were from Pakistan in Thailand. In, in that work, as well as that, that journalism work, you've still been able to promote and um, bring the word of God to, to people at, at really the margins of society, which you mentioned was the, sort of the core and initial inspiration of, of the Jesuits to begin with. That's right. Yeah, but um, Jack, my view, my view of uh, Jesuit priestly ministerial life is something that is very familiar in Australia. We we have a notion of mixed farming. You know, when someone when someone has a farm, they don't just run cattle or sheep. You know, they'll grow crops, they'll grow fruit. You know, they'll have chooks, they might have ducks. You know, mixed farming is the ordinary way in which people conduct their um, their uh, their farming life in Australia, and and it's the ordinary way in which Catholic priests buy them. I mean, you know, every priest is a worker priest. Every priest is someone doing a whole range of things related to the to the to the pastoral ministry, and that's what I'm doing. You know, I'll do stuff that's um, that you know it has straightforward and predictable uh, ministerial focus and terms of reference. You know, like saying mass and I mean what I'm running around doing at the moment and breaking my heart is um, being involved in the preparations for the funeral for Susan Ryan, whom you know, whom I love dearly. She was. Uh, you know, probably the most influential woman in Australian political life. And, uh, but she was just a personal friend of mine and I loved her. And um, I wrote a good obituary about it, which, show, you know, lots of other people write about all the extraordinary things she did in terms of public policy, you know, and I, but the thing that really galvanised my, my affection for her is, is just the profound... Um, profound spiritual depth of the woman even though that would be the last thing that she'd ever say about herself because she she got so frustrated with the catholic church she had very little to do with it formally speaking but you know her sister's a nun and you know if if it ever came to asking well who are you susan it wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't you wouldn't go very far till you know catholicism came up in it um so she's you know so i do all that sort of stuff you know as well as, you know, writing and editing and publishing and doing all that sort of carry on. So I'm doing all that. Um, and it's, it's all, you know, part of a rich and complex day, which, you know, just exhausts me. And at the moment with all the bloody, you know, difficulties I have with my amputated leg, it's, it just leaves me exhausted every day. And uh, I hope gradually I'm going to get stronger and get my get my act together as a um, you know as a human being, and then as a priest, and then also as a publisher and journalist, and all the rest of it. 
but it's just going to take time and it exhausts me even to think about it, let alone do it. So yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. There's a, there's a great tax on, on priests and, and, and missionaries that live in other parts of the world, such as you living in Bangkok. There's a great personal tax and emotional tax on, on that life. That's right. How, how do you, 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 you spoke at the, at the, the beginning about um, the person that interviewed you in high school, that he left the Jesuits um, <laughs> four or five years after talking with you. That's how, right. How do you not walk away? Uh, look, I worked this out very early in my life. I'm, you know, my commitment, my commitment is to God. It's a faith commitment. It's a journey in faith. And it's, it's fueled and, and by the spirit and fed by the message of the gospel. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm 67, soon to be 68. Uh, of course, the institution is inadequate. It's hopeless, actually, if the truth be known. Um, that's no surprise. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it, you're, you're an idiot. You're an idiot if you uh, live in the belief that somehow or other it's going to be perfect. Uh, it's not. It's, it's inadequate. It's, it's stupid. It's self-defeating. Um, like just about everything else in life. I mean, what reconciled me to the Catholic Church was one of the jobs I had for a long time, for about 10 years, was a close association with the big telecommunications company in Australia, Telstra. And I used to look at the way all Telstra had to do was make money. It was a profit-driven machine. And I looked at the way they used to, they used to thwart their own best purposes. And, I, and, I, and by comparison, the Catholic Church looked a positively mission-driven organisation when all the bloody people at Telstra had to do was, was make a dollar and they couldn't even do that. They, you know, I was what someone once said to me, he said, you know, I think we could sack everyone in this country, send them away, and no one would notice for about 18 months. For 18 months, the money would just keep turning over, the system would keep happening, and then eventually it would all blow up. Now, um, as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, I'm, I am doing what I'm doing, and I don't have any delusions about its vitality or indispensability or anything like that. I just do it. Now, people in the Catholic Church give me, you ever heard of the Edgar Britz, Jack? No, no. <laughs> what does it rhyme with? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The Rhyming slang, the <laughs> shits, yeah. So people in the Catholic Church, well, when I was a kid, there was, there was a jockey named Edgar Britt. And my, my father, who never swore, used to talk about someone giving him the Edgar Britts. <laughs> so, so I learned very early on. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that doesn't greatly bother me, you know, that there are idiots, you know. Um, there are idiots everywhere and uh, Catholic Church has got heaps of them. And so don't be surprised that they're there. I mean, keeps, keeps it human. Um, it's, a, it's something about the incarnation. Um, you know, God, God chose to spend time with halfwits and morons. Uh, we've got lots of them and many of them are in the church. Um, so that, that doesn't bother me. Uh, I wish there was a bit less of them and, you know, that's one of the reasons I joined the Jesuits, that I thought there were a few less morons in the Jesuits than there were in the church in general. Well, I was wrong there. I've just met heaps and heaps and heaps of morons and idiots and, you know, put up with them in the Jesuits too. So anyway, 
that's 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 the last arrogant and presumptuous thing I'll say for the time being. <laughs> Yeah. So you must have you must have rattled a few cages there. I am. I'm a, I'm a deeply threatening purpose. I, I mean, my attitude is um, fundamentally, I just want to, you know, I, I just want to do the good that I can. But being who I am is deeply intimidating to a lot of people. And that always comes as a huge shock, surprise and great disappointment that I actually upset people. With, with being as blunt and direct and all that as I am. And I don't mean to be intimidating, but I am intimidating. And I just, uh, you know, I have to live with the consequences of that. I don't intend to be, I don't want to be, but I am. Need to, need to be a bit smoother around the edges. Well, correct, you know, become a suave salesman. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that would fit you nicely. Oh, come on. And you wouldn't believe it either. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what you'd be able to sell either. Exactly. Yeah. So that the, the missionary work, when you do that work, is that the work that really drives you to keep? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's what's been there all my life. Is, uh, you know, it, when I was a kid, the thing that I fell in love with was the world embracing wonder of the christian gospel and its reach throughout the world i mean several key experiences that i had as a child of just seeing how transcultural and international the whole matter was they were shaping and significant to me and um, you know i could take it to particular places with particular people at particular times and say yeah that was that was that's what formed that conviction and so you, you being a part of that, that transcultural mission sounds like it's one aspect that keeps you involved is, in, yeah. in that organisation and enables yep. you to do that specific type of work because it's quite unique, not, not, not really any other job you can um, pack up and, and head off to anywhere in the world. I mean, they, they talk about the Jesuits being... Um, soldiers of God coming from Ignatius being a soldier, soldier, yeah, and always being uh, capable and ready to to up and leave and go wherever they have to. That's it, that that's very unique in especially in present day, and it provides the the organisation with with a great capacity to extend its reach to the far corners of the world. Can't do it now, of course, because there are so many restrictions. You know, the Jesuits were able to do it in the in the early centuries, basically as an outreach and extension of colonialism. Can't do that now, but the Jesuits are so well started all around the world that that they can, you know, they can run themselves in all the exotic places that I thought I'd I'd be some used to. Um, so you do it now more on um, professional credentials than you do just on wanting to be there. Right, right. And can you tell us about your um, experience with the Pakistani refugees in Thailand? Yeah, it was purely accidental. Uh, I got asked to look after one. He's now resettled in Sydney. Uh, and then a whole lot of others came along and... Uh, you know, so I've been working to get them resettled and sharing their hardships. 
because um, we've got quite a lot of them out, but COVID, Donald Trump, and a whole range of other complications have meant that um, it hasn't gone as quickly or as extensively as we want. So really what it comes down to is just, you know, never saying die, never giving up, never being ready to take no for an answer. And how many were you looking after at any one time? Oh, well, we've got about 150 resettled, but there's about another 450 we need to resettle. So all up, it's probably about 600. Right. And what was their story? Oh, all of them are running away from being abusively treated, most of them by the Taliban in, um, in Pakistan. Right, and so they worked their way over to Thailand in the hope of... Didn't work their way over. Just Thailand is one of the only countries in the world that would, would allow Pakistanis in on tourist visas. And before the Thais woke up to the fact that these people were coming on tourist visas, they, um, uh, they, a lot of them got there just to escape the knife at the hands of the Taliban. Once the Thais worked out that these people were coming... Um, they did. They put the shutters down. Right. Right. So that anyone that have left in uh, Af- uh, in Pakistan now have struggled to struggled to get out. Yeah. yeah. Well, they can't, and the yeah. ties won't take. And then COVID, COVID shut everything down. Um, we've got some to Europe, some to Canada, some to Australia, but everything is COVID has just shut everything down. Shut down all movement. And so, but you've really had to sort of share in that struggle with them and... Well, been awful, been awful. Very difficult. And to witness that, that plight, I don't know, in, in world media, you hear of um, masses of refugees moving across the world. There was the huge, obviously, refugee crisis in, in Europe coming from Syria. Yeah, um, millions of them. And you almost lose the personal or the individual story of, of the millions that they talk of amongst the, yep. the overwhelming statistics. But when you see the, the individual up close, that must be... Heartbreaking. Yeah. Each person that you uh, resettle must be in and of itself quite, quite a struggle. But then to do that on a mass scale... Is big deal. Yeah, big deal and hard work. And then, of course, comes the problem of you're dealing with the church. And when you're dealing with the church, you're often dealing with racists and bigots in the church who make the job of reason. Don't think everyone in the church is as open to refugees and asylum seekers as the Pope is. Lots don't want to have anything to do with them. And even those who are in that field, it has to suit their convenience. Yeah. Yeah, not always open arms. No. And have you found, obviously, it's been, having, having a leg cut off is quite traumatic. Have you found that your life as a priest or your, your Catholic faith has been any sort of consolation to you through that period? Oh, yes. I'm very grateful that, you know, for my relationship with God, which has been sustaining and enriching. But, you know, it's still hard yakka, Jack. It's still very, very hard, Yaka. Yeah. And, and the struggle is far from over. Yeah. Now, Mick, there's a lot of um, 
there's people that listen to this show that aren't that aren't I suppose religious and more that aren't Catholic what what would you say is the message that you'd give to them to bring them into the fold or show them what the 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 message of the church is these days well I wouldn't even frame the question that way because that sounds like you know we've got it and you need it and here it is so cop it sweet and I don't think that's true I don't think that's true at all um only only conceited insiders in a culture can can imagine themselves doing that sort of stuff and I'm I don't I really don't you know I think every one of us is on a journey and every one of us um, has opportunities and options and challenges and uh you know have to make our own way so uh we shouldn't be you know thinking that there's some sort of you know, magic formula and here's the formula and cop it sweet and, and away we go. And that's certainly not what I think is the way to life. I think, I, I think the key thing in life is to be open, is to be open to the ways in which uh, life becomes more meaningful and deeper and richer and to just explore that. And then that will take us further. And in my view, that takes us closer to God. You know, um, I mean, I, I just, as I said to you, Susan Ryan is an old friend of mine. You know, we met in a pub in Melbourne in 1987 or 88, I think it was. And uh, we were chatting each other up in the pub and we both knew what that was about. We were flirting and having fun. And, uh, but I knew where it was going to go. She'd want to know who I was and all of that. And I knew her sister was a nun and, you know, she was, she was uh, who she was. Anyway, so I thought there'll be a big disappointment when that all becomes clear. Uh, but it wasn't. And we've just been, we've just been dear friends and deep friends for three decades. And then came the shocking, I spoke to her last Friday because we were going to have dinner on Saturday. She was dead by Saturday and it just came as a terrible and uh, frightening shock to me that that, that that had to unfold. And so, you know, you know, not the day nor the hour. It's always going to be um, a challenge. And um, I think what you do is you say, God, I don't know. I don't know, but I'll give it a go. And I think that's what Susan did. Susan did that all her life, gave things a go. And uh, I tried to fashion in the obituary that I wrote for her um, an account of what holiness without explicit religion was really like, because Susan was a holy person. She was a lover. She, you know, she got treated abusively by certain people because, um, you know, life in politics is always about, you know, exploiting and, you know, doing awful things to one another and all that and it didn't get it well it did get it down but what she did was she harbored no grudges she uh didn't in any sense um want to settle scores she would just absorb the negativity and move on to the next challenge and the next opportunity and i think that is really the journey of faith Neg negatives and reversals and disappointments happen and you look at them and say, okay, put that one down to experience. What's next? 
that's transcendence. That's moving on. And Susan, Susan was like that. And Susan had a heart as big as a horse. She was, you know, passionate, committed, and made an enormous contribution across a whole lot of fields. But at the heart of it was a sound and true heart. And she was, she was a wonderful person. She was just wonderful. So I think a little bit of reception of her spirit, of her generosity, of her openness, and of her search would be good for us all. And just, I suppose, just on that point, before I, I let you go, um, you have, you, you obviously have friends throughout your life. Um, and as a priest, you have a, a unique role in being able to um, administer to their lives at, at some very important moments, um, mm. such as baptisms, weddings, funerals, and the like. Yep, yep. That must be both a great uh, honour, but also very difficult because they're so close to you and you. And yeah, you, and you share, you share the depth of the feeling. The, the, the enriching thing in, in the whole experience is the trust that people invest in you. That's, that's wonderful. And I value that and I'm grateful for it and it's terrific. But yes, it is. How do you, how do you support and sustain the trust that people have in you? Because you're not worthy of the trust that people have in you, but they do invest that trust in you. And that's, it's for that that I'm lastingly grateful. Yeah. Well, Mick, it's been um, fantastic to talk to you. Um, and to you too, Jack, and to you. And thanks, uh, thanks everyone for listening. All right. See you all later. Bye.